2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead." who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us, you also joining in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of the many. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the comfort we have in it and the comfort we share in it. Um, we thank you for uh, the sufferings of Christ as we get to partake in them, Lord. It's, uh, we are identified as your children because we partake in your sufferings, Lord. And because we are your children, Lord, we will also partake in the comforting, the sure comfort that is to come both now in our present lives, Lord, and also in eternity, the great reward we are awaiting. We thank you, Lord, that we get to come together each Sunday and hear the word of God preached. Lord, we pray that you would bless the preaching of it, bless our ears and hearts to be attentive and open to hear, Lord, um, that you would be showing us things from your word that we hadn't looked for, Lord, that you would maybe just surprise us with new and beautiful things of yourself, Lord. There's always more to see in your word, Lord, and we, I pray that we would come before you expecting that, expecting to see something new and beautiful from you. In your name I pray, amen. Good morning. Good morning. I'm both elated and, uh, and sobered to, beginning, uh, to be starting this uh, study of 2 Corinthians. This is a very powerful letter, and it, it's not a letter that makes Christians comfortable. <laughs> uh, it is, however, a letter that greatly comforts and equips when we, uh, when we come to it with prayerful humility. This letter shakes up the expectations that many Christians have about how this, uh, how this life is supposed to go. And that shakeup starts in the opening paragraphs, some of which we're going to be looking at this morning. This letter overturns our assumptions about what makes us adequate to be eternally useful to God. It dramatically ratchets up 
our expectations of what God intends to show this world and to do in this world through weak and frail vessels like, like you and me. This letter directly addresses what God expects us to do with the money that he puts into our hands. How we are to handle material prosperity. And this letter fortifies us for a battle that makes all of the temporary conflicts between men and nations on this earth pale by comparison. The very first assertion that Paul presents in both in both uh, First and Second Corinthians is that his ministry and his authority is from God and not from himself. He starts this letter with the words, Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God. He used very similar wording in 1 Corinthians. Paul's astonishing conversion story in Romans chapter 9 tells us that both his spiritual transformation from militant enemy of Christ to valiant soldier of Christ and his mission to bring the gospel to the Gentiles were entirely God's doing and not Paul's. And in Galatians chapter 1, Paul tells us in no uncertain terms that even the message that he bore, he received directly from the resurrected Christ and not from any human being, any mortal human. Now that's all very important because some in Corinth were aggressively trying to discredit both Paul's character and Paul's ministry and therefore Paul's message. Paul is going to respond very pointedly to the accusations of such men later in this letter. In the intro here, Paul identifies Timothy as his co-worker in the writing of this epistle. Now, Timothy, Timothy was already well known to the saints in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 4.17, we see that Paul had previously sent Timothy to the Corinthians Quote, to remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. End quote. Just as in 1 Corinthians, Paul identifies the audience to whom he is writing as the church of God which is at Corinth. Here he adds, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Now, if you take, you know, this, is a, this is a map of of Macedonia and Achaia in ancient days, but if you take a, a map of modern-day Greece, which would be roughly this area, and you, you make this line right about halfway, the northern part of that landmass in ancient times was Macedonia in New Testament times. The southern part was Achaia. Uh, Corinth sat right at the south end of this isthmus that connects Peloponnesia, which is the, the, that southern peninsula with the northern landmass. At the narrowest point, at the narrowest point, that isthmus is only four miles wide. Uh, now we I talked about this the first time around, and I'm not going to spend a, a lot of time on it this time, but what I want to point out to you is that, and here we are with the, the same, this is the same area, and there's Corinth right there. A little bit of a blow up of that of that same map, and here we have Corinth. Now, what I want to point out again one more time is that 
if you're trying to move goods from Asia over to Europe, with Italy being the gateway to Europe, the best way to do it is to go over that little isthmus. Because if you sailed south of Peloponnesia, you'd run into some very severe winds. There's, no, there's nothing blocking those winds for about 1,000, 1,200 miles. Um, so that was, that was where people, that's where the ships went. They would port on one side of that isthmus, move the, move the content over, and then they would put it on another ship and finish the route. In fact, they even, they even took smaller ships and put them on carts and moved them over. Uh, why is that important? Well, it's important because in about 47 BC, Julius Caesar recognized that that's one of the most strategic pieces of land in the entire Roman Empire. Um, and so he flooded Corinth with people and military resources and money to build up in infrastructure. Uh, and of course, we all know what happens if you flood people and money into a place. It becomes affluent and it becomes decadent. And that's exactly what happened in Corinth. Um, after identifying the writer and the audience here, uh, Paul gives an opening salutation, and I'll get to that in one second, but I guess let me make one more point, and that is just simply Dallas, modern-day Dallas, is a whole lot like New Testament Corinth. And that is very significant as we move through this epistle as it was through the last one, because Paul's talking to us here. The, the things that he has to say are very, very pertinent to our context and our cultural uh, the, the church living as a nation within a nation, as, uh, as a, a people in exile, really. All right. In verses, uh, starting in verse 2, actually, Paul says that, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's very common salutation and blessing for Paul in his letters. And then in verses 3 and 4, he turns his attention Godward with these words of heartfelt praise to God. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And then he says, Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's a lot of comfort, right? <laughs> and he's just getting started. But what I want you to make sure we see there is that, that the comfort that God gives to us, we then pass on to others. In verses 5 through 7, uh, Paul expands on his intention that we will act as instruments of God, paying forward to our fellow saints the same comfort that we have received from Him. He says, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant in Christ. But if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation, or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers in our sufferings, you are also sharers of our comfort. Now this is an extraordinary passage. 
ten times in five verses, verses three through seven, Paul uses this word comfort. And that, by the way, constitutes one-third of all of the uses of this word in the New Testament. 31 times in the New Testament, 10 times in these five verses. So, in order to understand this passage, we probably need to know what Paul means by the word comfort, right? Well, like the word hope, the word that's translated comfort here has a very, very different meaning in biblical usage than it did in the mindset of the culture at large, and it still does. It still does. What Paul tells us about comfort in these verses is intended to shake up our categories and our lives. The root word translated comfort here ten times is from the verb parakaleo. And by the way, it's from the same Greek root that the noun parakletos comes from. Does that sound familiar? Paraclete. Holy Spirit. In John 14, this same word shows up in various English translations as helper, comforter, advocate in reference to the person of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus was about to send to His disciples after He departed. Now you and I need to know that, that, that helper and comfort connection because we need to know that comfort as God defines it is inseparable from help as God defines it. The core meaning of the verb parakaleo is to call or summon alongside to help. Isn't that great? It's from a couple of different Greek lexicons, but to call or summon alongside to help. So the noun form as applied to the person of the Holy Spirit means one called alongside to help. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is our ever-present helper as we saw in the previous series sent by the Father and the Son to be in us and alongside us as we live our lives in service of Christ. Danker's Greek lexicon defines the root word this way, and I love this, to embolden for facing or carrying out a responsibility or task. To embolden for facing or carrying out a responsibility or task. The need to be emboldened in our case is because Christ guarantees our affliction for Christ. Now, I hope you're seeing in this passage that biblical comfort is a very, very different matter than what the world calls comfort. If you read verse 5 to someone who holds to the world's definition of comfort, they'll see it as utter nonsense. Here's that verse. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. See, to the world's eyes, there's absolutely no way both halves of that statement can be true at the same time. And that's because in the eyes of the world, comfort and suffering are mutually exclusive, right? The world's version of comfort, comfort exists only in the absence of suffering, and suffering exists only in the absence of comfort. What the world means by comfort is very well expressed by the word comfortable. Paul says both 
Comfort and suffering are at the same time ours in abundance precisely because of our identification with Christ. Our participation in the sufferings of Christ is abundant and our comfort through Christ is just as abundant at the same time. This is marvelous. The, the Christian life is full of these, these things that the world sees as mutually, mutually exclusive propositions. Joy and sorrow coexist in the life of the believer. Peace in the midst of conflict on the front lines of the battle. Both are true for us. God's comfort, beloved, does not end our suffering in this life for the sake of Christ. In fact, it doesn't even reduce that suffering. It does the opposite. It increases that suffering. This is a little off track, but I remember back when, the, when Ebola when Ebola hit and, and the, the team that was, medical team that was uh, in Africa and the man that almost died from it that was shipped back here and given the monoclonal antibodies and he survived and he was interviewed later and on, on like one of the big news programs and they, they said, you know, why would you go and do something that that's unsafe? That, that is that unsafe. And he, he said, you know what, following Christ does not make you safe. It does the opposite. And he said that's what he was doing. He was a Christian. All right. God's comfort does not reduce our suffering. You know what it does? It equips us in our suffering. God's comfort equips us. It fills the one receiving His comfort with courage and with power to press on and to remain faithful in doing God's work in the midst of the suffering that we will experience precisely because we belong to Christ. And one thing that you and I can be sure God's comfort will never do in our earthly lives is make us comfortable. Now Paul is not talking here about suffering we bring upon ourselves because of our sin. He's talking about our participation in the abundant sufferings of Christ. In Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, we have this guarantee from God. He says, The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. That's what the Christian life is like. We will suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. It's guaranteed. Several years ago, I came across a, a social media post from a, a believer that I knew who said that God doesn't really promise to give us more than we can handle. Uh, and the person was keying off of you know, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Uh, God will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able, but with the, with the test or temptation will provide also a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And his, his point was that we misinterpret that if we say that God never gives us more than we can handle. And, and I have to say, I, I agree, and I, I kind of agree, kind of disagree. But the disagreement part is because of what didn't get said in that thread, either by the one who posted it or by the comments that came after. And here's what didn't get said. What you or I can handle has absolutely nothing to do with what God gives us by way of assignment. 
The question is never, can I handle this? Never. The question is always, can God handle this? And the resounding answer is always, yes. And that, beloved, is comfort that equips. That is assurance from God that equips. This is not, this is not just words. This makes the difference between courageous Christian living and timid Christian living. In John's Gospel, the very last sentence that Jesus spoke to His disciples before His arrest and crucifixion, before He turned His, his attention and His incredible prayer to God in John 17, the last verse of John 16 and the last statement in that verse is, in the world, you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. You'll notice He didn't say, in the world, you'll have tribulation, but take courage. You're tough enough to handle it. It's not what He said. He said, I have overcome the world. Our comfort, our peace, our courage in the battles of this life never come from taking stock of our own resources and abilities and finding in them what we need. Never works that way. In fact, if that's where we're looking, God's going to, He is going to be at work to show us that that's that's not worth any kind of dependence at all. That's not, that's not what does it. We're going to have a lot to say about that as we proceed through this book. God's comfort is not comfortable. It involves tribulation. And God is the one who gives us what we need to be useful in the midst of it. Also, God's comfort, uh, it accomplishes things. We think of comfort as coming alongside somebody to put an arm around them and make them feel better. That's not what God means by the word. That's part of what happens, but why that, why that, why that sense of calmness and peace comes upon us when God sends out His comfort toward us is very important for us to understand. My original working title for this message was The Effectual Uncomfortable Comfort of God. I dropped the word effectual just to make the title a little simpler, but it's, it's an important word. The comfort that the Holy Spirit gives to the children of God does not fulfill its purpose when the person being comforted feels better. It fulfills its purpose when the person being comforted gets with God's agenda. That's what the comfort is for. The comfort that we receive from God during our earthly lives as His redeemed children is not given to us so that we can cope. I become weary sometimes of Christians who think they're here to cope instead of to overcome by the power of God. The purpose of God's comfort is not to keep us calm and carefree until we die or Jesus comes back. In fact, that has nothing to do with its purpose. I've said before, the, myth, the, the idea that Christians are supposed to live serene lives, even keeled emotionally, that's not biblical. We're going to see some of that here in a minute. In verse 6, Paul says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective. That's the word. It is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And what causes that suffering that Paul and his co-workers suffered? The service 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus. That's what causes the suffering. Paul says that God's comfort is effective. It gets things done. It equips. It readies us for action on Christ's behalf. Paul fully expects that just as the comfort he and his co-workers had received from God energized and equipped them to do the work of ministry that had so greatly benefited these saints to whom he's writing, in the same way the comfort that they were now receiving through Paul would energize and equip them to minister the word of the cross to others on Christ's behalf. This, this great principle is very powerfully stated in 1 Peter 1.13. Peter writes, Therefore, prepare, literally gird up your minds. You know what gird up means in New Testament terminology? Men wore robes, right? And if you were going to go into battle, you didn't do it with your robe down. You pulled your robe up and you tucked it into your belt and that freed you up to run fast. Okay? That's what all Israel did the day they came out of Egypt. They girded up their loins and left. Okay? He says, therefore, gird up your minds for action. For action. Keep sober in spirit. And here's how. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't look around. Look forward and upward. Look for what God has promised is coming. In fact, look for the One whom God has promised is coming. I mentioned that some of the Greek lexicons define the word comfort as a coming alongside to help. The comfort that the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, gives to us is encouragement. It is encouragement. Mark Sellers is the one who first put the hyphens in there for me many years ago, and it's, uh, I will never forget that. See, God doesn't give encouragement the way we think of encouragement. He gives encouragement. The purpose is to equip us to do what God has commissioned us to do. So, <laughs> what makes you and me ready for action at all times to be ambassadors for Christ on this earth, it is the encouragement of knowing how all this is going to end up. Of knowing that we are signed, sealed, and soon to be delivered into the presence and kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ to dwell with our triune God together with all the saints forever. That's very encouraging. That is very encouraging. Okay? There's no wimpy comfort here. Listen as I read verses 8 through 11. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. Now, this is where I agree with the guy who posted it's not a legit promise that God will never give you more than you can handle. Paul says, beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Who delivered us from so great a peril of death and He will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope. He will yet deliver us. 
you also joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the, the favor bestowed on us through many. And I think he means through the prayers of many. Paul and his co-workers experienced such severe persecution in Asia that they were convinced they would soon die. Why did God bring them to that precipice? Paul tells us. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That changes things, doesn't it? That expectation changes things. When we get to chapter 11 of this apostle, we will see in stunning detail how intense and relentless was the suffering of the apostle Paul for the sake of Christ. In fact, Paul's suffering makes anything that I have ever suffered in my life look like a resort vacation. Here, Paul speaks of one uh, particularly intense episode. He doesn't explain it in detail, but what he tells us is enough to make the point we despaired even of life. Beloved, we need to get this right. It's one thing when unbelievers get this wrong. It's quite another when the redeemed of God get this wrong. I can't tell you how many times I've seen Christians replace God's definition of comfort with the world's definition when God calls them to be alongside a brother or sister in Christ who is suffering greatly. Instead of talking about our real hope in Christ, <laughs> we talk as if we have some kind of inside track that, that assures us God is going to fix the suffering of that person this side of glory. I heard a very famous preacher a couple of years ago on the radio saying, if God has given you something really hard to deal with, you can be sure that the relief is right around the corner. Can you point that out for me in Scripture? Thank you. <laughs> Doesn't seem to be what happened to Jesus, does it? Or to the disciples? Instead of boldly and lovingly directing a suffering believer's attention to God's sure and certain promise of everlasting deliverance from every residue of the curse, we speak sometimes of a far lesser hope of temporary deliverance from some particular manifestation of the curse. We're so busy fixing our hope on temporary exemptions from the curse that we never get around to fixing our hope on the undoing of the curse, which is what Jesus died to accomplish. And it's what He guarantees will happen for us and to us who belong to Him. Now don't get me wrong, it's good and right for us to pray for God to mercifully deliver a brother or sister in Christ whom we see suffering in this life. Third John, right at the beginning, he says, I pray that you may prosper and that, it may, may, that you may be well, that your health may, may prosper as well. You know how many times you find prayers like that in the New Testament? Not many. But it's okay. It's good. It's, it's good to pray those things. But, but beloved, why does that occupy 90% of our, of our petition to God? Where are the prayers that we find in Ephesians chapter 1? Where are the prayers that ask God in 
Acts chapter 4 that asked God for boldness to pray to spread the gospel and advance the kingdom of God. Where are the prayers that are about getting with God's agenda and depending on Him to use us? Why do those occupy so small a percentage of our petitions? We need to clearly understand that we have no promise from God that He will keep our episodes of suffering in this life either short or manageable. Godly comfort says to our fellow saints, I pray that God will mercifully deliver you from this, and I'll keep knocking, I'll keep asking. But brother, sister, the real comfort that God calls me to pass along to you is not a promise that He's going to bring you out of this soon, that He's going to bring you out of this without great suffering, or even that He's going to bring you out of this still inhabiting your mortal body. The ground of all comfort that we receive from God is the sure and certain hope of everlasting resurrection life in the presence of God together with His people. These mortal bodies will soon be raised immortal, so we do not fear those who can kill the body. Biblical comfort and hope are two sides of the same coin. If our comfort is not forward-looking, it's not biblical comfort. If our comfort is about telling our brothers and sisters to look around and find assurance in how their circumstances going or will go, it's not biblical comfort. Biblical comfort, comfort and hope are inseparable. And hope that is seen is not hope. Hope always looks forward. In his excellent commentary on 2 Corinthians, Kent Hughes points out the unbreakable link between God's comfort of His people and the hope of Messiah's coming to establish His kingdom on earth, on earth, even in the Old Testament. He points out that Paul's not saying anything new here. <laughs> that God's comfort given to His people in Old Testament times was grounded in the same promise that forms the foundation of our comfort. The promise of the long-promised coming Messiah. Listen as I read the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, O oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she is received of Yahweh's hand, double for all her sins. The comfort that God commanded to Isaiah to give to His people was grounded in God's promise to bring their sin and the curse of their sin to an end. The very next verse, verse 3 of Isaiah 40, ties, ties that promise to the coming of Messiah. It says, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth a, de a desert highway for our God. Who said that later? Slightly different words. John the Baptist. While the death and resurrection of Christ at His first advent already secured this marvelous promise for all who trust in Him, our great comfort in this present life is in the finishing out of the salvation that His death and resurrection secured for us. That finishing out is going to happen the next time He comes. Isaiah chapter 65 says, 
For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. In the very next chapter, God says, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. And you will be comforted in Jerusalem. You know when, you know when we'll experience comfort in our circumstance? Not here. Not now. But in the kingdom of Messiah. God's comfort for His beloved covenant people in both Testaments is grounded not in any promise of perfect blessedness and security here and now, but in the promise of the coming new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem in which His people will all dwell together with Him forever. Now this is the same comfort or consolation that had sustained a devout elderly Jew by the name of Simeon to whom Luke introduces us in chapter 2 of his Gospel. The Holy Spirit had directed Simeon to come to the temple in Jerusalem on the day that Mary and Joseph brought the eight-day-old infant Jesus to be circumcised. Luke 2.25 says Simeon was, quote, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. That word translated consolation? It's the same word we've been talking about. Parakaleo, comfort, help. As Simeon took the eight-day-old Jesus into his arms, he, quote, blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Our comfort in the midst of the great hardships of this life is found precisely where our hope is grounded. Not in what we lay hold of here and now, but in the eager anticipation of what God has promised to us in Christ. In conclusion, getting and giving comfort even in the worst case. We in the, uh, in the affluent Christian church have a rather unconstructive tendency to do what I call chasing the middle case. We don't expect the best case. We know there's going to be some hardship involved in walking with Christ. But we convince ourselves that God is too kind to give us the worst case. Now let me ask you this. When Paul had his head cut off, was that a middle case? We spend our lives chasing the middle case. We construct a hard boundary right on the border where the middle case bumps into the worst case and we refuse to even entertain the possibility that God will ever allow our pain in this life to go beyond that boundary. But God has made no such promise to His children. And you know what? It's, ex it's extremely liberating when we embrace that. When we stop holding God to promises He never made and we start paying attention to the ones that He did, made, did make, like nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Our Lord. That's comfort that helps. That's comfort that equips. That's comfort that encourages. 
Brothers and sisters, we need to stop chasing the middle case and embrace the worst case. For Christ's sake, let's stop promising the middle case to other Christians. If you're in the room with a Christian who's about to perish, or it looks like they're about to perish, or they're even close to being about to perish, why, why not talk to them about the thing that actually will encourage them? And that is the fact that whatever happens with their cancer treatment, what, and I'm, again, I'm not saying don't pray for the healing. I'm saying let's talk to each other about what actually comforts, what actually helps, what actually equips. Let's talk to each other about the promise of eternal salvation in Christ. Embrace the worst case and view it in the astonishing light of God's real promises to you and me. And when you do, you will realize that the worst case is nothing to be feared. Nothing. It has no, it, there's no reason to fear it at all. God is the one who controls all blessing and curse. Just Him. And He's made us who trust in Jesus the objects of His eternal love. If God gives you a sentence of death, He intends for you to trust in Him as the God who raises the dead. It's just a bump in the road, guys. I want to be here. I want to be useful as long as God sees fit. But when the day comes that He graces me to leave this unredeemed body behind until I get my new one, the death of my body will be nothing but gain to me. I'm going to finish with 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. This is comfort right here. We do not want you to be un uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, which means dead in the Lord, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the Word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always, forever be with the Lord in them. Then how does he end? Therefore, comfort, help, equipped, encourage one another with these words. Dear Father, we thank you for we thank you for changing our definitions. We thank you for casting aside the the pale, pathetic imitation of comfort that, that this world has to offer. And we thank You that instead, Lord, the comfort that comes from above and the comfort that we extend to one another is equipping for life. It is strength from the living God. Your promises, Your precious and magnificent promises to us give us absolutely everything we need for life and godliness. And we're grateful to You for that, Father. Make us cling to those promises. Make us share those promises with one another. That's one of the most, very most important things that we do in the body of Christ is point each other back to your promises. We ask these things in order that we might be 
effective servants of the living God, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.